All right, let's begin. Heavenly Father, we pray for your blessings to help us understand this very difficult doctrine of uh, hell. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would not approach this doctrine with glee or um, some sort of logical delight, but rather that it would, it would give us great um, sorrow and great somberness. Um, we pray this for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so last week, uh, we sort of looked at uh, what is the doctrine of hell, right? And uh, some of you, if you're new, um, you can look at it in the Sunday School page. We actually forgot to record it, but we have the notes. Um, so you can sort of look over the notes. Um, so what is hell? Last week, we looked at that hell is not something that's like um, foreign to sin, like you sin and then hell sort of imposed on you, but rather hell is the final full flowering of sin, right? So, so sin is like a seed, and hell is the, the flower that results. You know, it's just a full expression, the full consummation of sin. So it's organically connected, right, is what we looked at. And in that sense, um, it's not unfair of God, right? This image that we have that God is sitting on the lid of hell, and people are desperately trying to climb out but rather that God is actually giving people what they truly want, which is, in reality, hell, right? Because hell is to flee God. And that hell goes on forever and ever. So today we're going to look at um, two alternate positions, or two alternate ideas of hell. Um, and so those two positions are called universalism and then annihilationism. Okay? So today it's going to be a little bit more academic than last week, a little less... Um, looking at scripture, a little bit more looking at alternate arguments. Has anyone heard of these two positions? Has anyone heard of universalism? Yes? Well, how would you define it? Um, well, everyone uh, just goes to heaven. Everyone will be saved, yes. So that's universalism. <clears throat> kind of the word there is helpful, right? <laughs> Universally. And then what about annihilationism? Does anyone, is anyone familiar with that? Oh, where's the rest of the studies? Has anyone heard of annihilationism? Uh, that you are annihilated, that you don't eternally suffer. Exactly, yeah. So you go to hell, you stay in hell, but that um, you don't exist forever. That it isn't forever that eventually you'll be annihilated. Okay, good. So we're gonna we're gonna spend roughly um, <laughs> we're gonna spend roughly like fifteen to twenty minutes on each, and then uh, I want to spend a lot of time leave over at least like five to ten minutes for questions. Because last time, basically said, two minutes, questions? No? Okay, let's go. So, let's start. All right, so number one, universalism. If you look there in the box in the italics, uh, universalism is the view that every human being will, in the end, come to enjoy everlasting salvation. And there are many variants to universalism, but we'll look at Rob Bell's version from his book, Love Wins. In this view, hell exists, but it will eventually be empty. Has anyone heard of Rob Bell? Has anyone heard of his book? Okay, love wins. Yeah, so it's right now like the number one best-selling book in Christian literature. And so it made huge waves. Um, not necessarily because he's saying anything new, but because um, he is a very, very popular evangelical pastor. And he's saying something that um, is very, it, that traditionally liberal Christians would say, but now he's saying it as an evangelical. So it made a lot of splash and waves. And he's a pastor in uh, Michigan, right, called, in a church called Mars Hills. So, 
So I, I uh, so it's basically interacting with his book and his arguments. So point number one: first, Rob Bell begins with the conviction that God is love. Uh, we see that from First uh, John four eight, and a loving God would never vindictively condemn people to hell for all eternity. And so God will pursue sinners even after they die, patiently waiting for them to come back, um, for them to repent and come back. And so in the end, God's love will win. And that's where he gets the title of his book, right? That God love, God's love will win and win everyone. Will win, will win those who die and go to heaven and will win even those who die and go to hell. He'll win them to heaven, right? And so this is from the back cover and I think it kind of shows you where he's going. Um, he says, God loves us. Right, so that's the that's the that's the uh, beginning paradigm. God loves us, and so God offers us everlasting salvation, uh, everlasting life by grace, freely through no merit on our own part, unless you do not respond the right way. Then God will torture you forever in hell, huh? Right. So that kind of shows you, right, that his idea is that um, a loving God could never send his children, his people. To suffer in hell forever and ever and ever and ever, right? That's just it doesn't it does it's not compatible with God's love. A loving God would never do that, and so uh, God does send people to hell, but that hell is not the final judgment, but that God will pursue them and convert them and bring them into heaven. So that's his argument, um, and he he sort of supports that by uh, citing Revelation 21 and saying that the gates of heaven will always be open. So, Hera, can you read that? Revelation 21. Sure. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. Yeah, so he says the heavens, the, the gates of heaven will be open forever, which means that uh, through all eternity, people will be streaming in, even from hell. Right? Okay, so point number two, his other argument is that uh, there's language in the Bible that speaks of all people being saved. Um, so let's read that table. Can you guys each read a passage starting with Brownie, Isaiah? Um, he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And just read verse 18. You can skip 19. <clears throat> Therefore, as one trespass, trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For all men, right? Uh, Eric? Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Right, so he's talking about all faces, tears will be wiped, every tongue will confess, and so Rob Bell believes that there's a final salvation for everyone, right? Um, so this is his kind of scheme. So let's say, you know, this is you in life, or this is people, and then here's the point of death, right? And then at death, some will go to heaven, and then some will go to hell. But those in hell, because... God will wipe away every tear. He will, um, he will rescue all people. They'll spend some time in hell to sort of think through things, realize the error of their ways, sort of reflect that life outside of Christ is really bad. And then it's kind of like um, the timeout corner of eternity. And then they'll eventually make their way 
back into heaven. Okay? So that's why um, Rob Bell is a universalist, because he believes that all people will end up in heaven. Some people will go the long, hard, scenic route, and some people will just go the more direct route. Are there any questions about like what he's what what he what his position is or any uh, clarification? So hell is not an eternity. Well, hell exists, but and hell may be eternal, but it'll be empty. Hell is more like the place where you ponder and think through why why what your mistakes in life so it's a timeout corner until you can join the other kids huh jail yeah it's kind of like jail we'll get into it more i would use another metaphor but okay so let's continue on or any other any other quick clarification questions yeah uh generally what what denominations or what uh, groups actually kind of follow this universalism classically um evangelicals um I don't like the word conservative because um, I think I think a much better way I would put it is classical Christians, right? So there's cl- there's classic Christianity, or maybe another way to say it is Orthodox Christianity, or maybe another way to say it is confessional Christianity. Anyway, traditional Christianity has always held a certain position, which is that there's eternal hell, and then. Um, Start in at least in the United States, starting around uh, the eight, late 1800s, people started to question some of the old ways of thinking, the classic doctrines. And so, what you had is liberal Christianity. Um, so, what are some of the denominations? Some of the liberal denominations are like United Methodists. Um, almost all the denomination, denominations have a what's called a mainline denomination, and that's like mainline because they're the majority big group, right? So, the, so you have the United Methodists, you have the uh, PCUSA, so that's the, um, the mainline Presbyterians, you have mainline Baptists, you have mainline Anglicans, um, and so all of them hold, most of them hold to universalism, which is that everyone in the end will be saved. And so, and so some people believe that uh, they're not going to spend a detour in hell. This is Rob Bell's unique position, that people will spend some time in hell, and then they'll come back to heaven. Some people believe it's just a direct pipeline to heaven. What is mainline? Um, mainline as like the, the original or... So what happened is the mainline is there was once like, for example, I know the history of the Presbyterians best. So the Presbyterians is the PCUSA. They were kind of like the only game in town, right? They were the Presbyterians. And then they started to go liberal and so we had offshoots break off. And so, yeah. The PCA is one of them. PCA broke off in 1973. So, so you're saying that main, <clears throat> the majority of mainline streams of denominations believe in universalism? Yes. Really? Yes. <clears throat> yes. So there are variants of universalism. Some people say everyone will go to heaven regardless of whether they believe in Jesus or not. Rob Bell is from the evangelical wing. So he says you have to believe in Jesus. So when you die and you don't believe in Jesus, you go to hell. But people in hell will eventually believe in Jesus because God will continue to sort of preach the gospel to them in hell and, and, and win them over. And, and, and so they'll convert in hell because they'll realize the error of their ways, believe in Jesus, 
their sins will be forgiven and then they'll go to heaven. Does that make sense? Okay. I guess it just goes counter to what you think because you would think that the mainline or traditional ones would be more conservative. Sure. And they would hold to the fact that hell is for eternity. Sure. So it's kind of, when you say that mainline, it kind of throws you up. Right. So mainline is the, all the mainline denominations have a really long and old heritage. But what happened was, and this is from the evangelical perspective, that basically um, you had culture start to change and develop. And so culture said, I'm really uncomfortable with this doctrine of hell. It's very, it's very upsetting to me, this idea that God could send people to hell forever. And so, so the, the, the mainline denominations, from the evangelical perspective, are trying to accommodate culture and so trying to... more liberal. More liberal, yeah, is, is exactly... The way we would look at it, they would look at it is, is that we're discovering new things and we're realizing greater things, and and that's the way they would. Look at it. Does that make sense? Okay, let's continue on. Um, so we're talking about universalism. Um, two, we're looking at two alternate positions: universalism, annihilationism. So we're starting with universalism. All right. Point number three. Furthermore, the Bible speaks of the restoration and reconciliation of all things. Right, not just for, for people in heaven. This is another argument that Rob Bell makes. Right? So that there's this biblical language of of everything, all of earth, all of creation, all of the universe being restored to God. So um, where are we? Tommy, can you read Colossians one? <clears throat> for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And then, Eric, can you read the last verse in Ephesians? Just verse 10. Um, as a plan for the fullness of time, which he and all things in him, in Yeah, so Rob Bell speaks of what's, what he would call a final salvation, based on these verses. That there will be a final salvation for all people. Um, all right. That leads me to point number four. Some of you are going to say, but what about all those places where Jesus speaks of an eternal hell, right? I mean, it sort of seems to go against the plain reading of Scripture where Jesus speaks of people spending, uh, some people will spend an eternity in hell. They'll be in hell forever and ever and ever. And so the classic text is Matthew 25. Matthew 25 is a story where Jesus says that at the end, in the final judgment, God, uh, Jesus will separate the sheep from the goat. Right? The sheep, his redeemed people, he will put on his right hand. And then the goats, people who are not his people, who rebelled against him, will be on the left. And then the sheep will go into eternity in paradise with him. And then the goats will go into eternity in hell forever. Right? And so that's the, the, the language. And so just to refresh our memory, um, verse 41, Sammy, can you read that? Uh, I mean, the whole thing. Matthew 25. And Christ will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed how do you escape this language that uh, that the goats will suffer eternal punishment? So this is Rob Bell's um, argument, and uh, I want to let him speak for himself. So I, I quoted it at length, and let me read it for you. Okay, uh, the goats are sent in the Greek language to an aeon of Colazo, right? So let me. Um, this is his argument. So I think it's. <clears throat> worthwhile writing it down. So he says that in, in the translation there it says eternal punishment, right? 
And then the Greek there is aeon, is kolazo, okay? Aeon of kolazo. And let me read it for you. Okay, aeon, we know, has several meanings. One is age or period of time. Another refers to intensity of experience. An aeon of kolazo. Depending on how you translate aeon and kolazo, then the phrase can mean a period of pruning or a time of trimming or an intense experience of correction. In a good number of English translations of the Bible, the phrase aeon of kolazo gets translated as eternal punishment, which many read to mean punishment forever, as in never going to end, but forever is not really a category that biblical writers use. Right? So, so uh, Rob Bell would translate aeon of kolazo as um, a limited time of correction. Does that make sense? It's not eternal punishment, but it is a period of correction and reflection. And you know, and some people are going to get there, maybe like Gandhi, who seems really pretty wise and pretty good already in life, and he'll realize immediately, Jesus is the way. He'll immediately repent, believe in Jesus, and go to heaven, right? So maybe he'll spend five minutes in hell. Um, others, like Hitler, who is a little bit more stubborn and more wicked, will spend a long time in hell, just like resisting, resisting, resisting. But eventually, even, even the hardest of hearts will, will come to realize the truth and then go into heaven. Does that make sense? So that's Rob Bell's argument. Any questions or thoughts? So that's his position in like 10 minutes. Okay, so I have three major problems with Rob Bell's universalism, okay? Um, number one, when Jesus speaks of an eternal hell, there's really no getting around the language. Um, Rob Bell is wrong about the language. First, on a linguistic level, it's not aeon, it's, a, um, it's aeonos. But um, aeonos does not mean limited time. It means eternal, okay? When he says... Um, several English translations. I think what's, what he should really say is all the English translations uh, put it as eternal. Okay? No, one, no one suggests other than Rob Bell that aeonus means limited time or a period. Okay? And the second thing is, let's suppose right, that we have no idea what Greek, what Greek words mean. And so we can look at the context. I think Jesus provides us... When he says the word aeonos, right, he lets us know what he means. So, for example, in Mark chapter 9, verse 48, Jesus says, right, we looked at this last week, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So these are worms that never die and eternally decompose you, and a fire that is unquenchable, that burns forever. Jesus is letting us know, right, that this is eternal. This is forever and ever and ever. It never dies. Never quenched. Never ends. And in Revelation 20, um, it says they're tormented day and night forever and ever. Uh, in the original Greek, it's aeonos to aeonos. Right? Eternity to eternity. Actually, when I read that, it kind of is really scary, you know? It's to really emphasize that it's eternal. It's not just eternal. It's eternity to eternity. Eternal it, eternity. Eternal eternity. I mean, it's, 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 it's as emphasis... You can... It's, as giving as much emphasis as possible. And so if it was a limited time, it doesn't make any sense, right? It's a limited time to a limited time. No, it's an eternity of eternity. 
All right. And then the final argument I would make on a linguistic level is just look at Matthew 25. If hell is a limited time of correction, Jesus uses the exact same word, aeonos, to describe heaven, right? He uses, he says eternal punishment on the left, and then the sheep will go to eternal life. So then if Rob Bell is consistent and he applies it in a parallel way, that means that heaven will also be a limited time, right? Is Rob Bell saying that? No. So he's being a little bit arbitrary. He's saying hell is for a short period of time, but heaven is forever. Any questions on that? So that's... Rob Bell is just plain wrong on, on the language. So when, it use, when it's describing eternal life, it uses the same Ayanos, word. exact same word. Right? How do you get around that? Rob Bell just ignores it. <laughs> okay. Uh, B. Um, if Jesus died for the people in hell, why are they still suffering punishment, even if only for a while? Why is the same punishment, why is the same sin punished twice, once by Jesus on the cross and once by the person suffering in hell? Um, and here, um, here, Rob Bell believes in something called universal atonement. And um, I don't want to get into it too much, but there are two classic positions. The Calvinist position, which believes in limited atonement. And then the Armenian position, Rob Bell is an Armenian, is called universal or unlimited atonement. Okay. Um, has anyone heard of these two these two words or these two? Brett? So do you, do you know what, what each refers to? What is limited atonement? What's unlimited or universal atonement? Um, I think limited atonement refers to the elect of God sovereignly choosing those. Close. You're very close. Well, what's the word, what does the word atonement mean? Christ has died to save and redeem a select people. Yes. And not everyone. Yes. And what is universal atonement or unlimited atonement? Everybody. Right. So it's a question of who did Jesus die for? Did Jesus die for his people, the elect, or did Jesus die for every single human being on earth? The Calvinists would say Jesus died only for his people. Uh, the Armenian would say Jesus died for every single human being. Rob Bell is an Armenian. <coughs> And he says, he takes Arminianism to his logical conclusion. If Jesus died for every single human being, then everyone's sins are washed away. Everyone is forgiven. Some people just haven't realized it, and that's why they go to hell. And that's why, because Jesus forgave everyone, everyone will go to heaven. But here's my question. If hell is the consequence of sin, why are they still going to hell? Right? If Jesus' blood has washed over their sins... Why are they still suffering hell? Why did Jesus suffer hell on the cross and then his, the person he died for also suffer hell, right? It, it's in, in legal terms, it's called double jeopardy, right? Where the same sin is punished twice by two separate people, yeah? Well, because Rob Bell doesn't think of hell as punishment purely, but as a corrective measure. He does think of it as a corrective measure, but he also acknowledges that hell is a consequence of rejecting God. So it's, it's a consequence of sin, Right? And did not Jesus die to spare us from the consequences of sin, right? That's what salvation is. He's our substitute. So Jesus suffers our, our penalty, but we still get the penalty, even though for a limited time. So that's my objection number two. Objection number three is, if God will eventually convert all people in hell, 
Why didn't he do it earlier while they were still alive on earth? Why didn't God rescue them before the suffering of hell? All right, so here's my major problem, okay? Rob Bell is saying people in hell, God will convert them eventually. So that they'll go to heaven. If, if God can do that, my question is, why didn't God just do it right here? Why, I mean, why let them suffer hell? And his answer is, well, people have free will. And God pleaded with people to turn, you know, come to me, uh, let me rescue you. But because they have free will, he can't violate people's free will. And so that's why they go to hell. But I think Rob Bell has really painted himself into a corner here because if people have free will, then how does he know everyone will be converted in hell? Isn't it possible that people will resist God and reject God for all eternity? And in fact, last week we looked at it. If God will not violate the heart, then people will resist God and hate God and flee from God forever and ever and ever. Nothing will change. In fact, we know that hell, um, they'll just disintegrate into, into ever deeper delusion and, and blindness and self-absorption. Um, so how does he know people will, will, will come around? And if he says that God can change the heart, God can win them over, God can persuade them, then why not do it here? I mean, it seems that Rob Bell's God is very cruel to send them to hell and then save them. Why not save them here, right? So there it is. So that, that's why I think um, those are my problems with Rob Bell's position. And that's why Luke 26, 16, 26, Jesus says, and remember we talked about this last week, uh, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And besides all this, between you, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Jesus says that, in fact, there is a great chasm and no one will cross over. And not because God is like, people are, people are in hell saying, let me in, let me in. You know, I repent, I change my mind. But because, as we said, hell is a prison in which the doors are barred from the inside. They don't want to leave. They're going to stay in hell forever because they cannot come to God because the presence of God is a horror and a terror and they hate God. That's the terrible tragedy of sin. And so hell and heaven will be separate forever for all eternity. That's what Jesus says. Um, Any questions or any thoughts? That's why it's called final judgment because it's final. (laughs) No? Any comments? Okay, so let's move on to annihilationism. Um, annihilationism if you look at uh, the box the italics it says annihilationism is the view that those in hell will eventually be destroyed hell is not an eternal endless torment but a place where you are utterly annihilated and then no more and so uh, there are three arguments here and so the first one is that the bible contains language describing hell as a place of destruction not necessarily that you're going to be punished and tortured forever but that you're going to be destroyed. And so, for the sake of time, let me read you guys some of the passages. First one, 2 Thessalonians. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Right? Um, and then John 3.16, right? The classic passage. It says, Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. So there's perishing. And then Psalm 37, I think, is very evocative and very uh, vivid. Uh, the psalmist says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb for the evildoers shall be cut off but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land in just a little while the wicked will be no more 
Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. So the argument of annihilationism is that that hell is, is not a place where you suffer forever and ever and ever and ever, but where you go to be destroyed. And then you're, you're gone and you're no more. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, and then the second argument is that an endless eternal hell is in, incompatible with a God who is loving and good. This should sound very familiar to us, right? This is Rabel's objection, right? Which is that eternal hell is really incompatible with a God who loves. God would never do that. And, and then the classic uh, proponent, you guys have probably never heard of him, is Clark Pinnock. Um, and so I think he's very eloquent and very, very evocative and very emotional. So let's, let me um, read you his argument here. Let me say at the outset that I consider the concept of hell as endless torment in body and mind, an outrageous doctrine, a theological and moral enormity, a bad doctrine of the tradition which needs to be changed. How can Christians possibly project the deity of such cruelty and vindictiveness whose ways include inflicting everlasting torture upon his creatures, however sinful they may have been. Surely a God who would do such a thing is more nearly like Satan than like God, at least by any ordinary moral standards and by the gospel itself. How can we possibly preach that God has so arranged things that a number of his creatures, perhaps a large number predestined to that fate, will undergo in a state of complete consciousness, physical and mental agony through unending time? Is this not a most disturbing concept which needs some second thoughts. Surely the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is no fiend. Torturing people without end is not what our God does. Does the one who told us to love our enemies intend to wreak vengeance on his own enemies for all eternity? So there's the argument, right? Um, Which is that God, if he loves his people, how can he possibly, if he loves his creation, how can he possibly send them to eternal, unending, forever hell? It's just, it's just, that's, I mean, then God is Hitler, is what Clark Pinnock is saying. Is there any questions there or comments? Okay, and then the, the third argument is that hell, uh, eternal hell is fundamentally unfair uh, for a mere lifetime of sin, right? So here's this argument. Let readers ask themselves what lifestyle, what set of actions would deserve the ultimate of penalties, everlasting conscious punishment, it is too heavy a sentence and cannot be successfully defended as a just action on God's part. Sending the wicked to, etern- to everlasting torment would be to treat people, persons worse than they could deserve. Right? And so the argument he's making is that the punishment should fit the crime. And no matter what you did, even if you committed the Holocaust, let's say that deserves horrendous punishment, maybe a million years. But eternity, okay, and I think Clark Pinnock makes a good point here. Eternity is unfathomably huge. Our mind cannot conceive of eternity. Eternity means a million years will pass and it will be like a drop in the ocean of time. It will go on forever and ever and ever. And Clark Pinnock's point is that what crime could possibly justify eternity in hell? That's just monstrously unfair. And so God could not be unfair. And so therefore, it must be that God will destroy them, that they will eventually suffer no more, that they'll be annihilated. So that's the argument. Um, any questions before I, I go to my objections? 
No? Okay. Um, so if you turn to the next page, I have four problems with annihilationism. First, the biblical language of, of destruction means utter ruin, not ceasing to exist. I think here um, an analogy will help. Okay? So Clark Pinnock and others say the Bible speaks of destruction, so that means no more. But let's say I say to you guys, uh, I got into a car accident and I just destroyed my car. Do I mean that my car no longer exists? No, right? What do I mean? I mean that my car no longer has any value or usefulness, right? It, like, it doesn't run anymore. It's, it's junk, but it still exists, right? And I think that's the language of destruction. It means that all that is good and beautiful and true in humanity will be absolutely stripped away. That the image of God that remains in all of us, even in corrupted, broken form for those sinner, for, for those of us who are sinners, um, I mean, all of us, but you know, for those of us who rebel against God, uh, even that will be stripped out, right? And I think we talked about that last week, right? That hell is just this eternal spiral downward into greater and greater like loss of humanity, you know? And so that's, a, that's what destruction means. Um, any questions there or comments, clarification? No? Okay. And then the second point is that um, Clark Pennock says that a loving God could never send people to hell, right? He can never be angry. Um, and then my second point is love and holy wrath are not incompatible attributes of God. So let me read to you Becky Pippert's um, quote. I think it's really good. We tend to be taken aback by the thought that God could be angry. How could a deity who is perfect and loving ever be angry? Just look at us. We manage to be very understanding and accepting of our flaws. We take pride in our tolerance of the excesses of others. So what is God's problem? The difficulty in pondering anything about God is that we bring our human pettiness, jealousies, and problems into the analysis. We can't help that, but it makes it difficult to imagine God having emotions similar to ours without the pollution ours brings. Even so, it may help to examine a comparable form of human anger. Think of how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. We are dead against whatever is destroying the one we love. Love detests what destroys the beloved. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. Nearly a century ago, the theologian Glifford wrote, Human love here offers a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. Um, I think what Becky Pippert's argument here is really awesome. We're not, we don't have to choose between a God of love or a God of wrath. God holds both of these attributes of love and wrath in perfect harmony and in perfect unity because God is perfect. And it's not that his wrath and anger is somehow a contradiction of his love. It's because he loves that he's angry. Right? The more you love someone, the more you love something, the more angry you are when it is destroyed and marred and, and violated. Right? That's true. And God's love is perfect. I mean, God's wrath is perfect wrath, holy wrath. And so he's able to be angry and he's able to meet out justice in a perfect way not in a petty vindictive way that we might imagine and so part of the objection against God I think is born from the fact that we imagine God to be like ourselves we need to remember that God is holy and not like us um, any 
Any comments there? Okay. Uh, my third point, C, eternal hell seems unfair to us, right? So that's what the whole objection is. But we need to consider our own self-justifying bias. All right. Hell seems unfair to us, but consider this, and here's an analogy. Should we go to people who are death row inmates and ask them, what do you think about the heinousness of murder? And what do you think is the appropriate punishment for murder? What do you think the death row inmates will say? Whatever they say, they're going to downplay murder, right? They're going to say, I think it deserves two or three years in prison, right? Why would they say that? Because they obviously have a bias. They're the criminals, right? They obviously make light of whatever they did. They're not going to think that it's that bad. And so think about it, right? We're saying to God, hell is unfair, but who are we? We are the death row inmates, right? We are the criminals. We're the sinners. And so how can we as sinners tell God what is the offense of sin? We cannot. We're, we, are, we're, we have self-justifying bias. We have to ask God. And God tells us, I mean, think about this, the seriousness of this. God tells us sin deserves eternity in hell. He's letting us know what sin is, you know. And so we make light of sin, but we need to really believe and trust God. Any comments there or questions? Okay. My fourth and final point. Um, the argument is made is that justice is not... Uh, or the argument is that um, it's unfair to send people to eternity, right? Um, and then, so my response is justice is not proportionate to the duration of the crime. So it's not like this, right? It's not like you did five minutes of sin equals five minutes of punishment. Okay? And so let me give you an analogy. Let's say you go up to a girl, right? I don't know. I'm a guy, so I'm thinking like this, right? You go up to a girl, and you push her really hard, and she falls on the dirt gravel, and she skins her knees. All right? That deserves some kind of moderate rebuke or punishment, right? But let's say you see a girl, and she's standing at the edge of a cliff, and you shove her really hard, and she falls down the cliff, and she dies. That deserves a much harsher, much more uh, stronger punishment. But you might say, it's the same duration. <laughs> it bo both of those sins took the exact same amount of time. It's both just a few seconds. And then your response would be, the duration doesn't matter. <laughs> what matters is the seriousness of the crime, right? And so... The duration of your lifetime of sin is not what's important. You can sin for five years, you can sin for one year, you can sin for 80 years. What really matters is the seriousness of your sin. And you're sinning against a holy and true and perfect and glorious God. Right? Sin is, 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 um, is a despising who God is. And so, therefore, God is letting us know right, that that is the ultimate crime. Right? That is the ultimate seriousness. And, and, and again, the whole idea of duration is totally flawed because Jesus suffered on the cross for how long? Just a few hours, right? And yet his sin, his suffering, sorry, his suffering was, uh, was sufficient for all the hells of all of humanity. Why? Because Jesus suffered the, the, the rejection from the Father, right? The Father turned his face away. And we can't possibly imagine what that is because Jesus enjoyed fellowship with God in heaven for all of eternity. He was in the Trinity. 
and, and, and the father turned his face away from his son. And we can't possibly imagine, we will never know what that felt like. But that was an eternity of eternity of hells. And so Jesus in a few short hours suffered substitutionary, sufficient for us that, that, uh, that we can be redeemed. Right? So duration has nothing to do with anything. It has to do with the seriousness of, of what's done. So, there, so that's my point about annihilationism. Any questions? I feel like I've got five minutes for questions. <laughs> so for point B, yeah. um, you're not saying that God created hell as to, to kind of show us to detest sin, right? Like as a, is that, is, I, I wasn't quite clear how you connect uh, you know, God's holy wrath and how he hates sin. Mm-hmm. How does that connect to hell? Did he create hell to show us that you know this is what the punishment is if you turn away from it? Is that kind of the connection? Um, that's one way to put it. I would say it's much more organic like, than that. Hell is the final fruition, fruition and consummation and full flowering of sin. So hell is just the sinner getting what he wants forever and ever and ever. And God created that, allowed for that reality to let people do, to have what they want forever. And so that's hell. And, and, and we can put it in other language. We can say that hell is, is punishment. Hell is suffering. Hell is anguish. And that's true. Um, but I would not say that hell is some sort of external prison. Like, like God says, don't touch that water bottle. You're like, hey, hey, touched it. And God's like, ah, throw you into the prison. And you're like, no, I'm sorry. No, no, I didn't mean to. Hell is like this, right? Hell is, is saying, this is water. I refuse to drink the water. And then God is saying, well, you're going to thirst. Well, I don't care. I don't want the water. You're going to thirst and thirst and thirst. And that's what hell is. Hell is refusing the eternal, all-satisfying eternal waters of, of Christ. And so hell is eternal thirst. So it's organically related. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think part of the objection, people think of hell like the Simpsons version of hell. It's like Satan with a pitchfork just poking you while you're sitting in the furnace, right? Um, and, and that is totally not, I think, the reality. I mean, these are metaphors. The ultimate reality is you're going you're gonna, to, you were created for to know and love and be in fellowship with God. Hell is that you, you will not know the love of God for all of eternity. And even in this life, people are began to experience that, just a smidgen. But God protects people. You know, I talked about that last week, right? So that you're in the cave and you still enjoy the indirect sunlight, the warmth of the sunlight. But one day, God will close the cave forever and, and His presence, will, His loving presence will be gone forever. And that will be an eternity of hell. You need the sun to stop Yeah. Yeah, the cave will get, the cave will go to absolute zero. Um, any, any other comments? That's a good question. Or does that answer your question or do you have a follow-up? Any other questions? Go ahead. It seems like the flawed universalism is a fundamental misunderstanding of what hell is. Okay. You know, that people who are going to hell actually choose it, actually want it, that's their desire, and God's letting them have the ultimate fruition of their desire. Yeah. I think the key flaw of annihilationism is 
discomfort with eternity. Because right? it's unfair. It's unfair. It's too harsh. It's too harsh. Um, and uh, again, it's like the death row criminal, right? When he's sentenced to the, I don't know, he's sentenced life in prison or he's sentenced to, I don't know what California does, lethal injection. The death row criminal saying, I think it's really unfair. And then you ask the, 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 the victims, the family, you know, their mother or their brother or their child was murdered by this man. And you ask them, what do you think of the fairness of it? What would they say? They would say, it's fair. It's right. It's just. Who is the better judge of the fairness of the crime? The criminal or the victim? The victim. Right? The criminal is totally biased. We have to remember, we are the criminals and we're telling God, I think eternity in hell is unfair. We are in no place to say that. So, yeah. Any other comments? These are great questions and comments. Anything else? No? Okay. Um, I think in some ways this lesson was a little bit, you know, academic. Um, so if you're really interested in kind of the biblical presentation of hell, that was last week. <laughs> so you can look at that. I would say this. I think annihilationism is more biblical than universalism. Because at least annihilationism recognizes the chasm, right? That there's no crossing over, that this is forever. Um, that there, that there, it's irreversible, maybe is a better word for it. The only thing is that uh, annihilationism says that people will perish in hell. And it's sort of like they want to show compassion to people in hell because um, it is a terrible doctrine. You know? it, is a, it, is a, it, is a, it is a doctrine that should make us really somber and, and really um, serious. You know? And I think in many ways, the reason why the doctrine of hell is so hated by the world is because Christians have really abused the doctrine of hell. People say... I'm right, you're wrong, you're going to hell. If I catch one of you doing that, I'll slap you. Um, but uh, 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 we need to really speak of hell with tears. You know, we need to really speak of hell with compassion. We need to speak of hell um, pleading with people rather than as some sort of gleeful punishment. You know, like people who put up signs, you know, gays are going to hell. I mean, that is like completely the opposite way that the doctrine of hell is supposed to be used in the Bible. All right, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we ask uh, uh, that you would uh, impress on our hearts the wonder, the glory of salvation, that your Son suffered hell for us to rescue us uh, so that we could enjoy eternal life in you. We pray that that would absolutely melt our hearts. It would make us hate sin and flee from sin to know that even the smallest of sins deserves hell. Um, we pray that, that we would love our co-workers and neighbors, that we would, we would really desire for them to know you, to, 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 to repent of their sins and turn back to you. Um, we pray uh, this for all your glory in Christ's name. Amen.